Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The rent is too damn high. Uh, That's not just a uh, good slogan, it's a real material reality. And Canada has some of the most expensive housing costs on the planet. 40% of Canadian renters spend more than 30% of their income on rent. And 18% spend more than 50% of their income. The poorest 25% of Canadians pay 54% of their income on rent on average. Many of us live in Toronto and they could tell you that the average price of a one bedroom is 81% of income for poor households. So if you want a two bedroom apartment and you live in Vancouver, Victoria or Toronto, you need to earn more than $100,000 to reach the affordable level. Young people are priced out of the housing market. In the 1970s, the, the cost of a house in Canada was about 200 hours of wages. In 2015, that had doubled to 400 hours of wages. It's almost certainly worse now. We've seen the scandal of renovations that people are falsely kicked out of their apartments. And this crisis of high rent is organically linked to homelessness. Working class people are priced out of the housing market. And we've seen the rise of tent cities in this current crisis. In 2016, there were 235,000 homeless people in Canada. And on any one night, there's 35,000 people on the street. So the, the depth of the crisis is undeniable. This is why there's such interest in this question. And Marxist theory can help us understand this crisis. As Lenin said, without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. But this revolutionary theory has been difficult to find. Most of Marx's writings on rent are in volume three of Capital. And to be frank, they're not very accessible. And, and so there aren't many uh, popular explanations of the Marxist theory of rent. So what I'm going to try and do here is to uh, give an introduction to this question. To get down to the essentials to help revolutionaries explain to workers what's actually happening here. So we could understand the crisis and propose the correct solutions. It's not enough to just say that landlords are parasites. Now, landlords are parasites. And I'm going to show that in this presentation. But, but, but I'm going to give you an overview of Marx's ideas so we can really understand how they are parasites. Okay. So yesterday we had a fantastic discussion on the foundations of Marxist economics. And, and one of the reasons we put that on was to make sure that people are are up to date on the concepts of the labor theory of value and surplus value and exploitation. And and so the basic explanation is that commodities are sold uh, proportionate to their socially necessary labor time. But this potentially creates an issue with uncultivated land. Uncultivated land is bought and sold. It has a price. But by definition, it contains no human labor. It's right in the word uncultivated. So, so how does um, Marxist economics encompass this contradiction? Right. And, and the more we look at land, you realize it's a commodity like no other. Now, now let, let's look at an expensive commodity like a car. A car contains a lot of labor and, and it's quite expensive. So let's say, you know, a car costs you $30,000. Okay. And then, and then the life of that car is about 10 years. Let's say you sell it secondhand five years after you bought it you'd probably be able to get about $15,000 for it secondhand. Reselling something secondhand, you sell it off cheaper. But 
that doesn't seem to work for housing and property. You know, you could buy a house in 1970 for $20,000. And in 1980, it would be worth $50,000. And 1990, it'd be worth $100,000. And and today it might be worth a million dollars. This doesn't make sense by the normal rules of uh, resale. So something very weird is going on. There's a saying in real estate, location, location, location. Okay, let's imagine a house, a four bedroom house. If you put it in the city, it sells for a million dollars. You put exactly the same house, exactly the same labor, put it in the suburbs, it's $800,000. Same house, same labor in the countryside, $500,000. And then you put it in a faraway province, it's 300,000. So it's clearly not just the labor that is being sold. So property is a hybrid commodity. On the one side, it, it, if it has a building or other structures, that is a normal commodity that is bought and sold like every other commodity, like a car, like a, you know, a computer. But the remainder of the price comes from somewhere else. And the, the technical term for that is ground rent. And it has to come from somewhere. And under Marxist theory, it comes from the unpaid labor of the working class. It comes from surplus value. That, you know, we, we're used to talking about surplus value in the exploitation of the workers. And we're used to using calling it profits as a shorthand. So yes, a portion of the surplus value goes as profit to the capitalist. But another portion of the surplus value actually goes to as rent to the landlord. And, and actually a third portion goes as interest to the banker. But so we're going to discuss. So how is surplus value split up to these three groups of parasites? Now, ground rent comes from monopolization of a force of nature. The land on planet Earth is a force of nature. Nobody labored to create that. And as we discussed before, nature is a source of wealth, but not value. So what's exchanged uh, when uh, commodities exchanged are the socially necessary labor contained with them. Actually, not only do forces of nature not add value, but if you utilize them, they lower the value. Like if you use physics or chemistry or sunlight or wind uh, to increase productivity, you lower the, the value. And, and, and anybody not using the best technique, not utilizing these forces of nature, their commodities contain wasted labor. But most forces of nature are infinite and they are accessible by anybody who knows how to use them. But planet Earth is different. Planet Earth is finite. There is only so much habitable surface of the planet. And the landed proprietor acts as a gatekeeper to a part of planet Earth, despite the fact that they added no labor to create the planet. They extract a parasitic tribute with the help of armed bodies of men. You know, they got a piece of paper that said, this is my land. Now, just imagine, um, you know, you're uh, playing frisbee in the park, you and a bunch of your friends. Now, somebody turns up with a piece of paper, says, my land, you can't play frisbee here. What are you and your friends going to do? Go away. I, that's the most polite relation thing you might say to him. OK, but now the man with the piece of paper turns up with a whole bunch of other men with pointy sticks and demand that they, you pay money to play frisbee. That's the basis of landed property. I've got a funny little analogy about this. There was actually a Simpsons episode that uh, detailed this. In one episode, the, the evil capitalist, uh, Mr. Burns, built a machine to block out the sun. And then he wanted to charge the, the hapless denizens of Springfield for the right to get light. He was trying to monopolize a force of nature. Of course, what happened is Homer led uh, a bunch of townsfolk to pull down the sun blocker. 
So Mr. Burns couldn't get his parasitic tribute, but he could have got it if he'd hired more thugs to guard his sunblocker. So th th this is a basic, uh, th this is what landlords are doing, that without state power, this tribute would not work. And, and they force, enforce that legal title with the right of eviction, and they harass anybody trying to use common land for free, which means they harass homeless people camping in parks. Okay, quick uh, reminder, where does surplus value come from? This is the unpaid labor of the working class. And uh, the worker works, eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And, but the work isn't, so the worker isn't paid for the work that they do. They're paid for their ability to work, which is their subsistence, their education, their reproduction, and a moral amount for each society. And typically the number of hours of commodities to achieve these four things is less than the working day. So the number of hours to reproduce labor power, uh, the number of hours is less than the working day equals surplus value. So the difference between labor power and the working day is surplus value. Now, and then the capitalist is the first one to take this surplus value. And, 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 and the capitalist is a parasite, he didn't labor, but at least his investment decisions do create a useful commodity. But the landlord doesn't do anything. So in a sense, the landlord is a parasite on a parasite. Okay, now let's, let's see how this is calculated. Now, first of all, we start with the concept of differential rent. And this, this is when the explanation can get a bit complicated. So if, if you wanted to take notes on this, uh, it might help you out. Now, the, the concept of differential rent comes from the classical bourgeois economists, Adam Smith, David Ricardo. And actually, it's an interesting thing. If you ever find yourself in a debate with someone with a right winger, uh, a right winger defending landlords, a lot of these right wingers think Adam Smith is the best thing. Well, Adam Smith, you can tell them, Adam Smith thought landlords were a parasitic rentier class. So it'd be amusing to see the cognitive dissonance when you tell them that. Okay, so they developed this idea of differential rent. Now, the capitalist wants to invest to produce something. I, I, I know we have lots of capitalists in the crowd today, but for the small number of you who don't have millions of dollars to invest, just, just imagine for a minute that, that you do. You know, we'll play fantasy bourgeoisie. Now you've got millions of dollars uh, and you want to invest it and you, and you want to get at least the average rate of profit. You want to get better than the average rate of profit, but you don't want to invest in a sector that's going to get you less than average. Okay, so you put, you pick a productive endeavor that you think you can get at least the average rate of profit. This is the logic of capital flows. In those sectors with lower than average profit, that they that capital shifts to sectors with higher than average profit. Okay, so you picked your sector of production. Now you've got to buy raw material, machinery, labor power, and get access to land and buildings. Okay, and then for whatever sector of production you're in, there is a certain demand for that commodity. And for the certain demand, it needs so much land. And, and there's a finite amount of land parcels that are actually suitable for any productive endeavor. And, and each land parcel would have an associated productivity. Like some areas would have very high productivity for a certain productive endeavor. Some will have a sort of average productivity. And some will have low productivity and no one will use them for that endeavor. So the type of things that affect productivity are access to raw materials, access to markets, access to educated labor power. So it's all the location. If you, if you want, if it's used for agriculture, then the fertility of the land is really important. Uh, mineral deposits for the extractive industries and communications, road, rail, water, or all, all, 
all of these different factors combine to have an intrinsic productivity with each land parcel. And because the planet Earth is finite, there's only a finite number of suitable areas. Okay, I'll give you a concrete example. Hamilton is known for being the center of steel production in Canada. That uh, it, it's, it's on the Great Lakes. It has good access to iron ore good access to labor and good access to manufacturing in Southern Ontario and Northern USA. So Hamilton is a good location to make steel and, and will be quite productive for that endeavor. Okay, so, I, and, and the need for land is gonna go up and down depending on the demand for that commodity. And there's a socially evolved division of labor between each commodity in capitalist society. And so as there's more demand, then more land is needed. But the the worst land has got to at least have the average rate of profit in society. So the least productive land has got to be able to achieve a productivity capable of getting the average rate of profit in society. If, if it was less productive than that, then no capitalist would invest that. And then you've got the areas, the land parcels with higher productivity, and they're capable of getting a, a higher profit than the average rate of profit. So this is where the landed proprietor comes in. So if the, the landed proprietor says, look, you want to use my piece of land, and, and, and I own land in Hamilton, which is very productive for steel, you have to pay me a tribute. Now, let's, let's imagine there's another area you could make steel, Pittsburgh. Now, let's say Pittsburgh has only got a productivity to achieve the average rate of profit. My apologies to the American comrades who are present today. I have no idea whether Pittsburgh or Hamilton are more than productive, more or less productive than each other. Uh, my latent Canadian nationalism is clearly preferencing Hamilton. Let, let's say for the same investment, the Pittsburgh plant can create a million tons of steel, but the Hamilton plant can create two million tons of steel. And the, Pits and the Pittsburgh plant has enough productivity to have the average rate of profit in society. This allows the Hamilton landlord to say, I'm gonna charge you a rent equal to the value of a million tons of steel. See, the, the Hamilton landlord has uh, parasitically extracted the excess productivity and the, capitalist, and the capitalist still gets the average rate of profit for society. You see, so invest in Pittsburgh, he gets the, the price of a million tons of steel. Invest in Hamilton, the capitalist gets the price of a million tons of steel and the landlord gets a rent of a million tons of steel. So this is the classical uh, explanation of differential rent. But you might have seen a problem in this explanation. What's the rent in Pittsburgh? Because the rent is whatever is above the average rate of profit. But by that idea, a, a piece of land that can, that can only get the average rate of profit pays no rent. And this contradicts observation because, because all land uh, under capitalism extracts a rent. So Marx developed the idea of absolute rent over and above differential rent. Now, Marx's writings on absolute rent in Capital 3 are very complex and, and they really focused on agriculture and, and with the assumption that agriculture is more labor intensive than industry. And now it's so complicated, I'm not even gonna to try to explain it. And it mostly only applies to agriculture. So, so I, I'm gonna simplify absolute rent. I, I'm up, being upfront to you, th this is a simplification. But the easiest way to conceptualize it, absolute rent is a monopoly price. So the, when you're looking at normal commodity exchange, on average, 
commodities are exchanged for their socially necessary labor. But the actual price fluctuates around this value and, and supply and demand plays a role in those price fluctuations. So price never exactly equals value. And, uh, but a monopoly can distort supply and demand. A monopoly can restrict supply and push up prices. And, and there's numerous examples of this. A classic one was uh, Standard Oil, which was broken up by the American government in 1911. There's been various sort of monopoly uh, uh, moves, yeah, moves against monopoly by, I think, the European Union for sort of Microsoft and Google and Facebook. In Canada, the cost of uh, cell service is some of the most expensive on the planet because Rogers, Bell and TELUS collude to have an effective monopoly. Now, a, a parasitic uh, monopoly sector uh, or it ends up being parasitic on the rest of the economy. It doesn't create any extra value. It's just an unfair exchange, more labor for less. So, and the landlords do this by withholding land. They withhold land, they create an artificial scarcity. It's a finite resource to start with and thereby they inflate the price through their monopoly. There's some statistics behind this. Uh, in the OECD, there are 426 million homes and 42 million, 10% of those are vacant. In Canada, there's 1.3 million vacant homes. So, so th these are kept out of the market to inflate the, uh, the absolute rent. In, in other areas of production, if there was this many unsold commodities, it would be a crisis of overproduction. But for property, it's actually a feature, not a deficit, a default. So they restrict supply. It increases the absolute monopoly rent. And that scarcity also increase house, housing prices. And, and, and those housing prices get completely distorted from any economic fundamental. This is because they're bought and sold as an investment, not as a useful commodity. Housing is not priced relative to useful labor. In fact, it's priced like fictitious capital, like stocks and bonds. It, it's not priced like it's an essential component of human life and productive activity. It's priced far in excess of the labor actually contained within it. Okay, so moving on to residential rent, which is what uh, working class people overwhelmingly care about. What I just detailed were Marx worked out agricultural and commercial rent and industrial rent. Uh, I'm sorry to say Marx didn't really analyze residential rent in great detail, although Marx and Engels do mention it in theories of surplus value and the housing question, where they do say that a portion of residential rent is ground rent. So because Marx and Engels didn't go into this in great detail, uh, uh, what I'm about to say is more of a tentative investigation and, and it's an extrapolation of their analysis of industrial rent. But a number of comrades are investigating this and so uh, I, I, I reserve the right to retract anything I'm about to just say. Okay, but taking it from there, any piece of land has an associated uh, ground rent. There's a capitalist ground rent, which is both absolute and differential rent. Now, the landlord isn't going to care who's giving him that money. If he could get a rent from building a Walmart on there, or you could get the same ground rent uh, to have building a condo. The, the landlord's not going to care whether it's a productive process or for residential. A contract is a contract is a contract. So under this idea, capitalist industrial rent regulates 
residential rent. But the industrial rent is based upon the ability of the capitalist to pay. It's not based upon the ability of the worker to pay. Hence the ridiculous rents that I detailed at the beginning of the lead-off. Now, previously explained that workers sell their labour power, which is made up of subsistence, reproduction, education and a moral amount. Now, rent is going to form a component of the, the value of subsistence that the worker has to pay. Subsistence isn't just food and clothing, it's also housing. You need a place to sleep. Uh, you need a place that's close enough to work that you can actually travel there. It also plays a role in reproduction. You can't raise kids unless you have a house. So rent plays a role in the value of labor power. Now, from the perspective of the capitalist, the capitalist doesn't care how good the worker's housing is. As long as the worker can get enough sleep to be productive the next day, and it's close enough for them to travel, then it could be the worst hovel imaginable. So housing quality, just like the value of variable capital, will tend towards its minimum. Actually, yesterday I posted some statistics about average housing prices in Canadian cities. And, and, and a number of people said, oh my God, that's, that's too high. I can get a place way cheaper than that. Well, not way cheaper, a little bit cheaper. But the fact is that was an average house. If you're paying less than that, it's probably because you're moving into a hovel. So the, uh, the quality of the housing tends towards the minimum. Now, rent is a, a co component of the value of labor power and the price of labor power is wages. But as we know, the price of commodity doesn't always equal its value. And if rent goes up, then the value of labor power goes up. But just because the value of labor power has gone up doesn't mean the capitalist is going to pay the worker any more. So the cost of living has gone up, but your wages have stayed the same. It's a reality for millions and millions of workers today. And so wages, the price of labor power, is priced below its value for a whole period. And wages are forced below the level of subsistence. And, and some workers are even priced out of the rental market. They, they, can't, they can't afford the lowest rents in the worst housing. And that's where systemic homelessness comes from. Now, eventually, wages rise up to the value of labor power through the process of the class struggle. So if workers have unions, they're able to equilibrate that faster than, it, than if they're disorganized. And then through that increase in wages, if the working day stays the same, that will lessen surplus value. But before that happens, that the worker faces a you know, below subsistence existence. But, but you can see how the landlord is you know, doubly parasitic. On the one side, he takes a portion of surplus value from the capitalist. On the other side, he's a leech on top of the workers, which eventually leads to a rise in wages, which then redirects a different bit of surplus value from the capitalist. Did I mention that landlords are parasites? It's, it's, it's the theme. Okay, going back to the terrible position of the workers. Okay, so the, the workers are forced into the worst housing, but they're also forced into competition with non-productive sectors of society. So they face total indifference from the landlords and the capitalists. But then the capitalists and the, the managerial class sees the best residential land. You know, the areas with good communications, low pollution. We, we, we all know the areas of our towns and cities, the more bourgeois areas. So this competition increases the absolute ground rent. And, and Engels wrote about this you know, more than 150 years ago in the conditions of the working class in England. There's a modern word for this process. It's called gentrification. So the, the wealthier, unproductive sectors of society push out the workers and the poor. And the workers are pushed 
further and further out into lower quality housing with longer commutes. Engels literally explained this hundreds of years ago. Tell that to all of your uh, sort of uh, social science uh, departments and universities. Okay. So as well as forcing workers into low quality housing, it there's an organic link with unemployment and homelessness that... Uh, you know, where does unemployment come from? That capitalism develops the productive forces. It, it develops machinery and the productivity of labor. In a sane socialist society, improvement of productivity should mean we all get more leisure time. In an insane and inhuman capitalist society, increased productivity leads to higher unemployment. The bosses can create more stuff with fewer people. Now, this, this starts as a reserve army of labor as a threat to the employed workers not to ask for too much. But capitalism in crisis creates organic structural unemployment. And for the long-term unemployed, a sector of those won't be able to afford housing. When wages are static, unemployment goes up and rent's going up. So more and more workers are forced out in the streets. And actually unemployment, uh, homelessness doesn't just affect the unemployed. There's an increasing phenomena of workers forced to live in their cars. These are people with full-time jobs who can't find a place to rent. And, and this is why we've seen this growth of tent cities lately. And, and this is recreating a phenomenon from the 1930s, the so-called uh, hobo jungles. And, and this is where we see the re-intervention of the state. Remember, it was the state that helped the landlord create that parasitic monopoly, that the, the state enforces landed property. So you get violent state harassment of homeless people and the eviction of people who can't pay their rent. And it's happened in numbers of cities. You know, you've had cops come in and beat up everybody in these encampments. Just think about it for a minute. If you just, how does moving people around from park to park end homelessness? It doesn't end homelessness. It just moves it around, right? You, you don't, uh, that's not a way, that's not a solution to homelessness. Actually, the, the cost of this cop harassment is probably enough to house all of those people they're harassing. In Canada, it's estimated the cost of homelessness is $53,000 for every homeless person. That's more than enough money to house every single homeless person. And, and you get these well-meaning reformists who say, well, why don't we just house these people? Because landed property is based upon state violence. If you house these people for free, you would undermine the basis of landed property. If, if you allow people to utilize common land, housing prices would fall. It, it doesn't matter that the life expectancy of homeless people is decades lower than the general population. Thousands and thousands of people die every year for the maintenance of ground rent. In Condition of the Working Class in England, Engels talks about the social murder of capitalism. This, this is an important element of that social murder. All to maintain the parasitic tribute of the landlords who create nothing and do nothing. It's just sickening. So how do we solve this? The reality is there is no market solution. Now, all the politicians talk about incentivizing property builders. See, they're based upon, you know, supply and demand. So if you increase the supply of housing, the price will go down. So they give tax breaks to the property developers. They give them land grants. You go build, build. And they do build, but they don't build working class housing. They build expensive condos in a process of gentrification. Because again, we have to remind ourselves that 
property is a hybrid commodity. It's a combination of the housing and the ground rent, the labor and the ground rent. So you can increase the supply of housing, but that doesn't increase the supply of land. And in fact, land improvements make the ground rent go up. Because like sometimes, you know, the government will say, well, we'll build a subway and give you right to build a con condo above the subway. And they'll do that in the middle of a, a working class neighborhood. But they'll build an expensive condo that workers can't afford. And the, the subway station will, the, it's, it's a land improvement that increases the, uh, the ground rent. So now that the property developers have got all of this land and they're making massive profits. And, and there's a nice subway station funded out of taxes. But the workers can't afford to live anywhere there anymore. And they've been forced out in a process of gentrification. Actually, they keep on saying, oh, housing prices are going up because there's a lack of housing. It's actually not true that uh, between 2016 and 2021. So basically in the last five years. So there was a 5.7 percent increase in houses in Canada and only a 5.2% increase in population. So there'll be more houses built than there are than there's been population growth. And yet there's been a 41% price increase in housing. So there, there is no capitalist solution to this. Actually, really, the only solution is to eradicate ground rent. And, and actually, interesting statistics, look at the USSR. I, I just did a quick Google search of uh, rent in the Soviet Union. And so in the Soviet Union, they'd they nationalized the land and eradicated ground rent. Of course, we have a lot of criticisms of the bureaucratically run economy, but we entirely support the eradication of landlordism in the Soviet Union, in Eastern Europe, in China, etc. So the rents paid in the Soviet Union were really the commodity rent. It was really the amortization of the labor contained within the building without the parasitic uh, ground rent. Okay, so just by search of Google, this is what I found. So New York Times article in 1974. And so I hope people agree I'm not using a biased pro-Soviet source here. So New York Times said 1974, a two bedroom apartment in Moscow was eight to $11 a month. A four bedroom apartment was $20 a month. Okay, so then I search what was the rent in 1974 in New York? A studio apartment, single room, no bedroom, $170 a month. So the Soviet Union, the rent was 15 to 20 times cheaper than New York. And, and, your, and your Soviet citizen would have a lot more space than your poor worker in New York. Actually, you could say that to, due to bureaucratic mismanagement, the building of the Moscow house was less efficient than in New York. Now, I've got no idea if that's true, but let's assume it is. Let's assume that New York housing is more efficient, was more efficiently built than Moscow housing. If you had an equality of efficiency, it would make the Moscow housing even cheaper. So, so that's what we base ourselves upon, that rent must be based on the commodity value and not the parasitic ground rent. I, actually, uh, uh, you get some reformists to use the slogan decommodify housing. I, I, they, they don't actually uh, advocate decommodifying housing. Uh, th th all, they are, all they propose is sort of various elements of rent control and slightly better legal uh, protections for renters. Uh, all that will do is just slow down the increase in ground rent. A, a slightly cheaper commodity is still a commodity. Uh, but actual decommodification of housing would only be possible in a communist classless society. A transitional society would still have to pay the value of the labor. So, so ironically, the slogan commodify housing is incredibly revolutionary. That it's just a commodity, it's just the labor. But, but before you run out and put commodify housing on a banner,
I'd suggest a better slogan is eradicate ground rent, which is actually scientifically exactly the same slogan. But eradicating parasitic landlordism is probably better understood. So what solutions do we propose? Well, there is more than enough housing today. There's 235,000 homeless people in Canada. There's 1.3 million empty houses. What's that? You know, four, five, six times the number of houses to house everybody. And, and, and these empty houses are being kept out of the market for speculative, speculative reasons to artificially push up the absolute rent and the housing price, the resale price. So here's a choice for society. Expropriate these empty houses or let thousands of homeless people die. Now you can say we are terribly radical for saying we'll expropriate the houses because clearly the moderate position is homeless death. This is the sickening logic of capitalism. How's the goddamn people? It, it, it's, uh, how's, how's the people and stop the scandal? But we have to understand that this is incompatible with the logic of capitalism. So the capitalist state exists by enforcing parasitic landlordism. The state enforces a monopoly on land. The state uh, exists by harassing homeless people. To ask the capitalist state to not do these things is to ask it to not be the capitalist state. This is the lesson of Engels' housing question. Instead of a capitalist state, we need a workers' state, a workers' democracy, which will expropriate these 1.3 million empty properties and will save society $53,000 a head. The cost of police harassment, the cost of emergency room visits, the cost of associated crime and, uh, and drug use and, and, and all the other things that go with homelessness. And these are just immediate emergency measures. Yes, this is the emergency act we need, but we, don't want, we won't stop there. We need to nationalise the land and the property developers to develop, to develop a democratic socialist plan of housing. There'll be a massive programme of renovation and building. We'll take the present slum housing and the disaffected youth that live in those areas and give those youth free education to, to learn how to be architects and engineers and uh, electricians and plumbers, city planners and carpenters to create the best quality, environmentally sustainable, healthy housing. We'll set rents to cover the labor and not the ground rent. It would be on that basis, it'd be easy to lower rent to 10% of wages or even lower instead of, instead of the present condition where 40% of the population spend more than 30% of their income on rent. This, this would be no gray tower block. This would be based upon workers' democracy, unleashing the creativity of the working class. We redesign these poor environments using the best techniques and democratic workers' control so that the people can also live in harmony with the environment. You know, there's all these fantastic ideas about green roofs and green walls and, uh, and the creativity is immense. Capitalism only lets the super rich have these things. When in fact, all of these technological advancements actually are cheaper in the long run. Low quality housing is short term cheap and long term expensive. You combine this with a massive investment in, uh, in public transit. So we're living harmony with the environment and all society will be better when we get these parasites off our backs. Instead of them hoarding their parasitic tribute, we will reinvest that wealth into bettering everybody's lives. We could end homelessness immediately. Everybody would have a great place to live and a great future in socialism. Let's fight for it, comrades. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. 
Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.